Live from Tel Aviv, two nice Jewish boys. This podcast is made in cooperation with the Jewish Journal, www.jewishjournal.com. Unshakable and unbreakable. Those two words were used by the Obama administration to describe the special, intimate relationship between Israel and the United States. When Michael Oren found himself almost against all odds serving as Israel's ambassador to the U.S. in 2009, he found out sooner rather than later that these relations were, in fact, very shakable and maybe even breakable. His impossible job was to prevent that from happening. Promising change and peace, Obama entered the White House with a burst of optimism and some might argue arrogance. To Michael Oren, the Obama administration's and its relations with Israel and Prime Minister Netanyahu shaped to be the greatest challenge of his life. In his book titled Ally, My Journey Across the American-Israeli Divide, Oren depicts the almost unimaginable chain of events that took place during his four-and-a-half-year term as an ambassador. Since this January marks one year to the end of the Obama era, we thought it was a good opportunity to recap, look at the Obama years from a distance, and discuss his legacy. Michael Oren is a deputy minister in the prime minister's office, member of Knesset in the Kulanu party, and he served as the Israeli ambassador to the United States in the years 2009 to 2013. In a previous life, Oren also taught history at the Hebrew University and Tel Aviv University and was a visiting professor at Harvard, Yale, and Georgetown. He is the author of several books, both fiction and nonfiction. Deputy Minister Michael Oren joins us today for the second time to talk about the Obama years from an Israeli perspective. Two Nice Jewish Boys is produced by us on our free time. If you feel like helping us out and donating, go to 2NJB.com slash donate. Any donation is much appreciated. Now, after that, without further ado, <laughs> really, Aton, no, I should come here. I don't get that kind of reception <laughs> in Knesset, as you can imagine. <laughs> Deputy right, Minister, right. thank you so much for joining us. Thank pleasure, you. Pleasure. So I want to start um, because with, uh, with uh, maybe a... A complicated question, but while you were ambassador, um, I, we watched many interviews, we read the book, you seem to be very careful not to undermine uh, the Obama administration, of course, the uh, Netanyahu uh, administration, with any hypercritical remarks about um, either. Uh, but looking back now, can you or would you say that Obama's tenure as president was perhaps one of the worst times in U.S.-Israel relations? Well, let me start by saying this, Eitan. The job of an ambassador is to, is to build bridges and keep them open. Okay. Uh, to uh, preserve channels of communication. Because if you are perceived as, you know, persona non grata, whether, you know, formally or implicitly, then you can't fulfill your job. And, uh, and that was my job, was to go out there and say, even at the, at the most tense moments, and even when the relationship was in close to a, a nosedive, was to go out there and say everything was okay. And in this Ally memoir, the book, I uh, paraphrase a 17th century English uh, diplomat who said that that ambassador is is a, is a man of good of good nature and good character who is sent to by, uh, abroad by his government to lie for his country. I paraphrased him. Said he's not quite right. I think an ambassador is a, is a person hopefully of good nature and character who is sent abroad to lie for two countries, <laughs> uh, which is what I did most frequently uh, by going not out. Not an and easy saying, job. Not an easy job at all. Um, and and it took a toll on me both physically, I tell you, and emotionally. And um, it was. Uh, I, I, as you mentioned, I, I came to the job as, a, as an ambassador, having been an historian for many years. So I had an historic uh, perspective on this. I knew that Israel had had very close, uh, very, very, very intense, intense relationships uh, with the Eisenhower administration, even with the Kennedy administration. People forget that Kennedy wouldn't receive Ben Gurion in the White House. He would only host him at the Waldorf Astoria in New York. And if you look at the transcript of that meeting, it was very harsh indeed. Wasn't that a greater respect, though, to be hosted in the Waldorf Astoria? <laughs> I feel like I would prefer depends, that. Depends, depends what the brunch was like. But uh, no, he had him up in a suite Luckily, in the Waldorf the Astoria. Wouldn't have him in the, in the White House. People forget that the first Israeli uh, prime minister to visit the White House was Levi Eshkol, and it was after the Six-Day War. 1968 was the first uh-huh. Israeli prime minister to visit the White House. So now it has become routine and, and, and assume that if an Israeli prime minister goes to Washington, of course, he's going to go to the White House. But it wasn't the case then. The relationship with the Obama administration was unique insofar as uh, it occasioned a, a frontal, head-on collision of worldviews. 
And I believe that collision would have happened had any other uh, Israeli leader been prime minister, even if we had had a labor government in this country, because Obama's worldview was so incompatible with the sort of the national worldview of the state of Israel. I'll give you several examples. Obama had a, a deep and abiding respect for international institutions such as the UN, including the UN Human Rights Council, which condemns Israel more frequently than all countries in the world combined. Including uh, North Korea. Including and every country. Yeah. Okay? North Korea, Korea, every um, Syria in its day. And um, Obama, uh, after President Bush, withdrew uh, America's ambassador to the Human Rights Council. After President Bush withdrew America's uh, ambassador to Damascus, to Syria, mm-hmm. Obama turned around in his first months in office and restored them, both to the UN There's uh, the Human Rights Council. There's the photograph of John Kerry eating with Assad in the, in the restaurant. There was, a, there was an friendly. endless procession of Obama administration officials and Democratic Party officials going to Damascus. They loved Assad. Mm-hmm. They, loved, they loved Gaddafi. People forget this. They mm-hmm. renewed relations with Gaddafi as well. It was Hillary Clinton who renewed relations with Gaddafi. People have very short memories in Libya. So um, that the administration actually, uh, uh, maybe not officially, but they condemned Israel themselves, not just through the, you mentioned in your book, uh, after Joe Biden's visit, they used the word, we condemn, they don't condemn Israel in general, but they condemned an action taken by, which was, you know, you're, you were blindsided by it, but the, uh, the decision to build in, in North Jerusalem. Actually, Northwest Jerusalem. Northwest Jerusalem, yeah. Listen, the condemnation, which is by the harshest word you can use in diplomacy. You can deplore, you can regret, Yeah. okay? You can dislike, but condemnation is usually reserved for terrorist attacks, and it was used regularly with us by this administration. That was a symptom of the differing worldview. Mm -hmm. Uh, The worldview included a deep ambivalence toward uh, the possession and use of force. Uh, One of my favorite uh, quotes of President Obama, and I was present when he said it, was the following. Whether we like it or not, America is the world's leading military power. Now mm-hmm. think about that line. Would John F. Kennedy have said that line? Would Reagan have sent that line? Would Bill Clinton have said that line, whether we like it or not? Now we Israelis, Jews, we wake up in the morning and we say a bracha, that America is the world's leading military power and not say Nazi Germany, not Soviet Russia, not communist China. For us, it's, it, it's a miracle. Mm-hmm. For but him, for, it was a burden. It was a burden and, and a, not necessarily a source of pride. And you saw how it played out. He, he was extremely luck, reluctant to project that power and was reluctant to project it where it counted most for us, which was in Syria, after uh, Assad violated the American red line on the use of chemical weapons on its own, under his own population. That decision had profound, profound ramifications for the entire Middle East and indeed for the world, because the Russians took note of it, the Chinese took note of it, um, that the Obama... administration, um, to my mind, is the only case in history where you had a world power that voluntarily dismantled that power and cloaked it in virtue. Hmm. Now listen to what I just said. I can't think of any other empire in the world that simply within just a short period of time, we're talking about eight years, dismantled it and cloaked it in virtue because the power, according to this worldview, was bad. Mm-hmm. Now, unless you've spent a lot of time in American campuses, and I think you got from my resume that I have, mm-hmm. unless you grew up in my generation, the generation of the 60s and 70s, where American power was perceived as bad, this will sound strange to you, but it doesn't sound strange to me at all, and I understood that worldview very, very well, very well, and therefore, uh, Obama didn't surprise me very often, mm-hmm. but it, it was incompatible with an Israeli worldview. We don't like these international institutions very much. They're always coming after us. We appreciate, deeply appreciate Military power, um, we're unabashed in our, in our use of it when we have to use it, but particularly American military power. So these, this was a huge class. It wouldn't have mattered. Now, the fact that you had Benjamin Netanyahu, who as a, as a person was incompatible with Obama, only uh, accentuated, the deep, accentuated and deepened the differences between us. But, you know, looking back, people in Israel remember very badly this, uh, the, the Obama years. Remember all the difficult um, scenarios and everything that happened. But reading your book, there are so many moments of complexities. It's not really black and white. There are, so m- there are many moments in which you feel for Obama as an Israeli for his acts 
And you, you, you emphasize it in the book even. Well, I like that, Noor, because I myself am ambivalent. Now, maybe surprise you, surprise your listeners, but I have a great affection for President Obama. I have a great respect for President Obama uh, as a personality, as, a, as an orator. Um, he was, in many ways, unsurpassed as an intellect. His worldview, though, was a monumental challenge and often a threat to the state of Israel. And I had to distinguish between the two, between my personal feelings, mm-hmm. which were and remain quite warm, and what I perceived as, um, as just immense challenges for us. How, how uh, you... I'll give you the, the bottom line. President Obama viewed Israel as part of the problem. He viewed Iran... From the a, get-go? As, from the get-go. From the salute as a solution. Um, Iran dis- uh, the Iran was a solution. Israel was the problem. Israel was the Israel and, the, and its in its conflict with the Palestinians was the core conflict of the Middle East, and the core of that conflict was the settlements, all of which we knew then, but certainly we know now, is completely false. And Iran, um, I mean, you're seeing the outcome of it now. You mentioned earlier that looking back at the year to the Obama, since the passing of the Obama uh, age of Obama, it's not true. We're still living in the heart of the age of Obama. Uh, with Iran now not only uh, fir- firmly in control in Lebanon, firmly in control in Iraq after the American withdrawal under Obama, uh, in Yemen after the failed uh, American policy toward the Arab Spring, um, in, with the closest ever relationship with Hamas in Gaza, and now establishing itself militarily in Syria, where there was a vacuum, a vacuum created by Obama's refusal to act there. So we have Iran to the north, east, south, and west of us in Israel. And Iran is creating a Middle Eastern empire under the aegis and legitimacy of the Iran nuclear deal. Another uh, Obama, perhaps the most significant uh, Obama uh, achievement, quote unquote, in, in the Middle East, because the nuclear deal provides the money for expansion. It provides legitimacy. No one is taking issue with what Iran is doing in the Middle East, except for the United States, Israel, and the Sunni states. But nobody else is, mm-hmm. has that legitimacy. <clears throat> and the nuclear deal gives all gives around all the benefits of actually having a nuclear weapon without possessing a nuclear weapon, which is regime survival and expansion. And it, it, it's brilliant. And this is this is a direct result of viewing Iran as the solution and not as the problem. And uh, we had to contend with that. That was uh, how did was, you approach that problem? Well, you could try to engage the administration in some type of meaningful dialogue, but that wasn't going to happen. The, the Obama administration was at once both the most ideological administration in America's history, probably since Woodrow Wilson, but it was also the most centralized, in which sense you, you, you couldn't really influence the administration unless you were getting to maybe two or three people within the White House. Most, their names, for the most part, were not known to the Israeli public, hardly known to the American public. How many people knew who Valerie Jarrett was? Or, or, or uh, Dennis McDonough. Um, and at most point, we were just dealing with the third and fourth circle, with uh, the Dennis Rosses and Dan Shapiros, um, mm-hmm. not with the inner circle. So it's highly, highly centralized. One of the more um, unusual characteristics of the Obama administration was, was, was its ability to stay on message. Uh, the president would, would determine a message, and it would percolate down through the round, rounds of government to the lowest levels and it didn't matter whether these messages bore any resemblance to reality. I'll give you several. Technology will make it harder for Israel to defend itself. Look it up, friends. See how many times the president said it and how many, how many different sentences. Now, we know, empirically, we know that technology made it easier but he for Israel to defend it. itself. What? He financed the technology. He, no, the Congress did, and he added on to it. Okay, he added $206 million so to Iron Dome. the contradictions... He, but it was strange. He, he, did, he would say this. Um, uh, Russia will become bogged down in the quagmire of Syria. Wrong. Um, virtually everything said about the Arab Spring was wrong. Wrong about Egypt. Wrong about Syria. Wrong about Libya. Wrong about Lebanon. Uh, uh, wrong about Yemen. Wrong about Palestine, Israel. Um, am I leaving anything out? <laughs> but how wrong. did you... How did you reconcile matter. with this, mm-hmm. the, the, the fact that on one hand you admire him and on the other hand you're hearing these crazy contradictions every day. He's condemning Israel while sending an ambassador to Syria. He's saying these, uh, I mean, unfactual statements. I mean, how do you not, you, you speak about it at the beginning of the book, how you felt like maybe towards the end of the first year you were like, 
you were thinking to yourself, okay, I don't know if I'm going to last here. I, I would say it often. You know, here you have, you know, Iran, for example, um, brutally suppressing a, a peaceful revolt in 2009. You have Iran kidnapping 35 American servicemen, kidnapping American journalists, American tourists, throwing them in prison, torturing them. Uh, Iran plotting, listen to this, to blow up a major restaurant in Washington, D.C., Cafe Milano, with the Saudi ambassador inside, at the same time plotting to kill me, the Israeli ambassador. And what is the American response to this? Nothing. Benjamin Netanyahu comes to Washington, and he's treated like a third-world dictator. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a quote from one of the, the columnists in the Washington Post. Treated like a third-world dictator, and he was. And, okay, you can have legitimate policy differences. You know, it was within Obama's right and purview to oppose Israel's settlement policy, our Jerusalem policy. But at the same time, the administration was always telling us to respect democratically elected leaders in the Middle East, whether it be Erdogan or Morsi uh, or even Rouhani in Morsi in Egypt and and Rouhani in, in Iran. Who was respecting Israel's democratically elected leaders? <clears throat> Israel's democratically elected leaders. I mean, Israelis mm-hmm. go to a poll and we elect a leader. It's not an easy decision. But then it's a decision. To, for us, it's a life and death decision. I encountered virtually no respect for that decision. So how do you bridge that gap that Eitan is talking about between his intellect, his talents, and the blindness to see, to read the, the Middle Eastern map correctly? Well, I think in the answer, I think you'd have to go to the, um, to the last interview that Obama gave on his foreign policy to Jeffrey Goldberg. It's an extraordinary interview. It's, uh, it's almost 60 pages long in print. 60 and 60, pages? 60, 60. Take you several hours to read it, but it's worthwhile. It's, it's, it's an extraordinary document if you want to understand this period in American history and American-Israel relations. It, um, Jeffrey asks him, uh, point blank, he says, you know, you, you, you went to Cairo in June 2009. You held out your hand to the, to the Muslim world, and you offered a new set of relations, and everything went wrong. It went wrong in Libya and Egypt, Syria, um, Iraq. Where didn't it go wrong? What happened? And Obama remarkably responds, the Middle East didn't live up to my vision. Now that in a way says it all. The administration was ideologically uh, petrified. It had no flexibility. Mm -hmm. And um, if you didn't conform with the vision, then you would run afoul. You're the problem, Not, not me. Yes, oh, no question about it. It's not just we're the problem. The Middle East is the problem. Yeah. The world was the problem. Russia was the problem. Ru- you know, Putin didn't conform. They uh, never addressed <clears throat> it with practical approach. They always came at it with these big ideologies. It was, it, but it was an ideology. Again, if you come from American universities where these ideologies have become doctrinaire, uh-huh. they've become the equivalent of religion, then it was very, it was not surprising. So according to that doctrine, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is the core conflict. You had the head. You had Obama's first head of uh, the National Security Council, General Jim Jones, who said that if God came down to the earth to him and asked him if he wanted to solve any problem in the world, what would it be? Not world hunger, not AIDS, okay, not poverty. He wanted to solve the Israeli-Palestinian problem. By the way, he said mm-hmm. this repeatedly. They really believed this. Yeah. At the core of that conflict was the settlements. It didn't matter <clears throat> that Israel had made an offer several offers in 2000, 2001, and 2008 to withdraw from the, almost the entire West Bank, give up half of Jerusalem, all of Gaza, and Israel had already ripped up 21 settlements of Gaza. It was all about the settlements. You had to have, so this was doctrine, 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 doctrine. <clears throat> in Bosman's first meeting with the um, Jewish leaders, in, already in his first week in office, he met with the, uh, with the American Jewish leaders, that, mem- that, that, that meeting is, is best remembered because for the first time, J Street was invited into the White House. And I view J Street as a branch of the administration, and really a creation of the administration. Um, there was an exchange between Obama and Malcolm Hanlein, uh, the, the head of the president's organization. And Obama said um, that there has to be daylight between Israel uh, and, and the United States. Now, by the way, that daylight, that, con- that phrase doesn't translate into Hebrew, but uh, it has to be daylight, that America can't be perceived as being on Israel's side all the time because mm. the Arabs won't come to the table, and then Israel won't move. 
And uh, Malkin Heinlein stood up and said, Mr. President, I beg to disagree. He says, if there, if there is daylight between Israel and, and, uh, and the United States, the Arabs will never move. That notion that there had to be daylight between Israel and the United States in order to advance the peace process was 100% wrong. Because when there was no daylight, when President Bush stood, st- stood fast um, by Israel during the Olmert years, that is when Israel made a proposal for a two-state solution. Mm-hmm. It is when Obama came in and put the daylight in that the peace process went absolutely nowhere. Absolutely they nowhere. saw the cracks between us, between us and the Americans and deduced that this is the time for, for them, the Palestinians, to... To go unilaterally to the UN, yeah. uh, to sit on the sidelines eating popcorn while the Israelis and the, Pal- the, Israelis and the Americans beat up one another Tear on the field. each other apart. Literally, yeah. they tore each other yeah. apart. Why, why get into a negotiation? And, and foul that up. It was an ideal situation for the Palestinians. In fact, everything the administration did pushed the Palestinians away from the peace process. For example, if you demand um, entire settlement freeze, and it means settlement freeze, remember, they're, they're defining Gilo, French Hill, any Israeli neighborhood, Jewish neighborhood, over the 67 borders in Jerusalem, in which more than half the Jewish population of Jerusalem lives. Mm-hmm. So you're making an impossible demand on the state of Israel that no Israeli government can fulfill. Merits couldn't stop building in Gilo and French Hill or by the Kotel. By the Kotel is also occupied territory, according to this definition. You've created a situation where the Palestinian president cannot be less Palestinian than the president of the United States. So Abbas couldn't go into negotiations unless there was a complete building freeze over the 67 borders, which no Israeli government could fill. So right there, you've stopped the process. Mm -hmm. Right there. But we're still trying to dig ourselves out of it. And do, you, do you think that at any point there were decisions made by Netanyahu or decisions made on the Israeli side that, uh, that uh, hindered the, the process? I want to elaborate on that because in the book, it feels that you're very sympathetic to the Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, you portray him mostly as the victim, I, I felt. And so... Well, keep in mind, we were a country then of seven and a half million people up against a country of 320 million people. Yeah, there is an asymmetry here. There's a disparity yeah. of powers. And you've got the most powerful leader in the world beating up quite publicly uh, on an ally, which I thought was, was bad for America and bad for the world. Because the entire world, I make this point repeatedly in the book, the entire world looks at the U.S.'s relationship as a type of litmus of America's credibility. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, you know, when I... Um, I spent a short period of time dealing with uh, Palestinian interlocutors in, in actual peace talks. We had six hours of peace talks about nine years ago. And I probably learned more in those six hours than I learned in, oh, by 30, 40 years at a university. And one of the things I learned was that the Palestinians didn't trust Obama. Didn't, the Arabs really didn't like Obama. But the Palestinians didn't trust him. They didn't trust him because, oh, many things. Obama had demanded an entire settlement freeze and then didn't deliver. Um, so he wasn't a man of his word, but also they told me you can't trust a man who beats up on his best friend in public. The irony, the irony, (laughs) the fact that he beat up on us, the Palestinians didn't like it. Mm -hmm. They respected Bush more who stuck by Israel, (laughs) which shows, which shows a sort of uh, deep ignorance of Middle Eastern and particularly Arab culture. Yes. Which brings me to another question. How, how ready do you think the Obama administration was for dealing with the Middle East? Or do you think they just came in kind of... They came in with their, their fixed ideas. And the Middle East had to conform to those fixed ideas. It, 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 again, it had very little flexibility. And, um, because anybody that knows uh, Arab culture knows that honor and your word and, you know, not be like you described beating up on, on your friend is something that's so uh, fundamental. So it seems kind of preposterous that a, a president would come with these. Who is surrounded uh, by smart people. It's not only the president. He had the, the, the smartest people. The smartest uh, people. The smartest people. The, the so resumes no one in the administration them? would ruin your day. Um, <laughs> Here's a good one. You know, Obama, again, in another interview with Jeff Goldberg, um, talked about um, that, that, he, that he, he viewed Iran as a potentially responsible regional power that, if properly engaged and treated with respect, could serve as a bridge between the Sunni and Shiite worlds. Now, you tell a Sunni Arab that and see how they react. Um, so even that notion that somehow Iran could be a positive force for regional stability 
mm-hmm. by the way, that was very deeply ingrained in this administration, bore not even a passing resemblance to Middle East realities, not even. So we, we had to deal with that. And um, we had to deal with more difficult things. Not all of them can be made public today. Um, but for example, a consistent message, we talked about earlier of, the, of the, uh, the uniformity of messages coming out of the administration. You may remember this one. If Israel does not uh, make peace with the Palestinians, it will be internationally isolated. Or as uh, John Kerry used to say, will be isolated on steroids. This was said again and again and again. Now we understood this was a threat. <laughs> the same Jeff Goldberg, I think on a, um, a, an unrehearsed um, ad lib comment on the news said, that's like a, a mafiosa coming into a bakery and saying, it's a nice store you got here. Just shame if something were to happen to it. Okay? Uh, it was a threat. We understood it was a threat. But the, the message to the world was, if Israel doesn't make peace and you, the world, decide to isolate Israel and sanction Israel, we're not going to do anything. Now, it turned out to be exactly wrong because Israel is less isolated today than any time in its 70 years of existence. Less isolated. Where is the prime minister as we talk? I don't know when you're going to broadcast this, but he's in India today. Something that, I, by, by the way, would have been unthinkable when I was your age. So mm-hmm. when we had no relations with India, we had a terrible relationship with India. We're less Before isolated. Before the backpackers, the backpackers changed it. Every, obviously. They were <laughs> ambassadors. Credit, credit where credit's due. But um, it was just, it was wrong, but it was a threat. And um, for us, it was a factor for delegitimization. Yeah, but, just, what we, but what about us? Mm-hmm. Again, we're back to the question about Netanyahu, Prime Minister. What did we do wrong? Well, we did many things wrong, and um, the book discusses them. Um, I had uh, a minority position within our government which said that we should do everything possible to meet Obama's demands on the peace process, everything possible, uh, in, of course, in accord with our security interests. Nothing that was going to jeopardize us, but do really go that extra mile, to all the time extra mile, that we were there with him on the peace process. But on the Iran issue, on which we had zero margin for error, we'd had to dig in our heels. But at least, you know, the prime minister then co- could go to the Congress and say, listen, I, you know I did everything for peace. You know I'm a man of peace. When I tell you that this Iran deal threatens our existence, threatens the Middle East, and threatens your security, believe me, now, we were not able to do that. Now, we have our own domestic uh, you know, political constraints, and I understand that. And Netanyahu is, is, now you is, understand is, it. I know more. He's elected, elected to a certain party. I'm never a member of that party, but I understand it. But it would have been, as they say in American English, it would have been my druthers uh, to, to, t- to go the extra mile on the peace uh, issue if we could have. That with all the understanding that uh, Mahmoud Abbas, in any case, wasn't coming to the table and wasn't going to sign an agreement, and, and at least maybe he could have... Obas could have borne some of the, the responsibility for the collapse of that process. What do you think is the United States' role in a, uh, in a peace process? Because, you know, some people might look at it from the side and say, what, what, you know, how is this your business? You know, leave it to us. But, but the United States a lot comes and kind of says, okay, we're going to dictate. Should the United States put a plan on the table? Should they only facil- what, facilitate? What is the... Uh, what is the role they should play? Well, for better or for worse, um, uh, achieving an Israeli-Palestinian peace, and before that, an Israeli-Arab peace, has become sort of the, the, uh, the golden grail uh, of American diplomacy. Um, my PhD thesis, written many, many years ago, uh, dealt with the peace process of the early 1950s. And you can't imagine how many American mediators went back and forth between 1949 and 1956. It continued through the 60s. You can't even remember all the mediators who, if you remember, any of you guys remember Philip Beebe? Do you remember <laughs> Secretary Rogers? No, you don't. You're all shaking your heads. These were big mediators in their day. Um, and you know, they achieved what they achieved or didn't achieve what they achieved. Um, and there is a, a very long list of American peace plans. Um, the, the path to conflict is paved with American peace plans. So I'm not particularly enthusiastic about another American peace plan. Uh, of course, again, every because president has his prerogative. What we need is a deal. It's not a plan. Okay, you have to assume that there actually is a deal out there to be made. I'm very skeptical. But, or there's someone to <laughs> the make a deal, deal. with you. But I do think that there is a value since peace, or at least progress toward peace, is a paramount Israeli uh, interest. And if our, our, our preeminent ally is willing to help us fulfill that interest, meet that interest, then yeah, as, but we, it, as we say, uh, where I come from, New Jersey, bring it on. But if help mm-hmm. gets in the way... 
And sometimes you have to, you know, if you're trying to do something and someone's trying to help you and that help is actually hindering your progress. So that's what I'm wondering is if you think that the United States offering up all these plans all the time is maybe a uh, an obstacle. Maybe we rather should rethink than... the whole concept of well, peace it, process. The problem is that, that whole process is backward. I mean, where have we had peace? We've had peace between Egypt and Israel and between Jordan and Israel. But in both cases, you had leaders who are willing and capable of making peace. On the Palestinian side, there is no one who's willing today. No one is capable. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas doesn't even represent the West Bank, much less Gaza. Uh, he won't stand for re-election. He's in the 13th year of his six-year term. Um, so what do, even if he were to put a signature on a piece of paper, what would it mean? It would actually mean nothing. Um, so in the absence of a viable partner, um, we have to ask ourselves, how then can we change the status quo in a way that uh, benefits uh, Israel security, our long-term future as a Jewish and democratic state, and enables the Palestinians to lead the freest and most autonomous Improve possible their lives. lives. Yes, definitely. I think that's what you do. That's that's being realistic. It's not aspiring. What every president, certainly in recent memory, has aspired to is that moment on the South Lawn where you have a an Israeli leader in one arm and a Palestinian in another arm, and you're somehow bringing them to the table and signing. I'm sorry if we can't reach that iconic moment again. Uh, but For now, uh, this era is gone. I, I don't believe it's here, but I do believe that, that Israel in particular, and here I'm going to surprise you, maybe, um, that this is the optimal moment for moving. Israel has never been stronger. China, India, Africa. America. The former Soviet Union and its bloc. Mm -hmm. um, Latin America. The Sunni world where our relations have been closer than ever. An administration now which is, which is friendlier, really, than, than anyone I can remember. Our economy is strong. Our military is mighty. Uh, the IDF is more than twice as large as the British and French armies combined. This is the moment to move forward. How? Well, to reach, I think, um, some far-sighted uh, agreements with the Trump administration, something we couldn't do with the Obama administration for many reasons, not the least of which it was, un, it was, un, it was unwilling to, um, to consider creative solutions or even interim solutions. You had to go with the two-state solution the way they said. There is no alternative to the two-state solution. We heard that every week. Okay? It's mm -hmm. actually wrong. There are many alternatives. And uh, matter of fact, the two-state solution is not a solution. I believe it's a contradiction in terms right now. Maybe it will be someday. You give the Palestinians a state tomorrow, It'll fall apart in a matter of days, matter of, matter of hours. And it'll fall, about, fall apart in the best of cases to Hamas and the worst of cases to ISIS. Tell me where that is a solution. I'd like to know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so anyone gets up there and says the two-state solution is the only solution really is divorced from Middle Eastern realities. But there are other ways of moving we forward. We have many guests who think that. Many uh, Israelis think that. They can think it as they want, but tell me actually how it works in practice. Mm -hmm. And no one will be able to come up with an answer. You don't have a single Palestinian leader, not one who will say the words two states for two peoples. They'll say two states, but they'll never say two peoples because that means that there actually is a Jewish people endowed with the right of self-determination in our homeland. They're never going to do that. And yeah, without that, you will never have a legitimate peace. You will only have a transient peace. So until you have a legitimate, elected, stable Palestinian leadership with institutions to back it and a Palestinian leadership that's actually willing to enter into a permanent, legitimate two-state solution... It represents an end of claims, an end of conflicts. And by the way, you have absolutely none of that today. You will not have a viable two-state solution option. But that doesn't mean you have, don't have other options. Creating Wait, I, I want to I yeah. interject for one second because maybe that's a bit ambitious. I mean, we have Syria on the northern border and Lebanon, which we are far from peaceful with. Right. So we'll have ISIS on the border. <laughs> but, but, but that's I'm, a different... I'm, I'm, you, but you know, it's a, it's for argument's sake. It's a somewhat different border. Because that border, you know, overlooks all, us as we speak. Yeah, literally, it overlooks us as we speak. And you in this apartment will be within mm -hmm. rifle range of that ISIL, ISIS pay. We will not be able to maintain our sovereignty to conduct our daily lives under that. You won't be able to take a plane out of Ben Gurion Airport, which is less than two mm -hmm. kilometers away from that border. Okay, it's within easy rifle shot. Mm -hmm. So um, you can't you can't think in those. The security risks are just far too great. Every kind of risk is too great. So. What can you do? And what you can do is uh, what I wrote in the, the Wall Street Journal several years ago, an article called uh, The Two-State Situation. What we have in the West Bank today in Judea and Samaria is basically 
a Palestinian state. It doesn't conform to the, the Weberian uh, definition of state that has a monopoly over its use of force and over its foreign policy. But it's an extensive autonomy. Uh, Israel is not making uh, settlements in downtown Ramallah or in Janine or Nablus. Let's take that autonomy and expand it. Expand it to the maximum degree possible that it's consonant with our security interests. As in my job as deputy minister, now we've gone beyond several years beyond my being ambassador, I'm dealing with the glass half full of our relationship with the Palestinians. I'm involved with bringing 150,000 Palestinian workers into Israel every single day. That's at pre-Second Intifada levels. Exporting all of Palestinian produce uh, through Haifa because they can't export through, uh, through Syria anymore. We have many levels of, uh, of coexistence that, by the way, never makes the press here. But we can expand on that. Doesn't it resemble the Bennett plan, uh, what you're describing? Yeah, but Bennett less... also wants to annex big parts of the West Bank, right. and I'm not in favor of that. I'm not in favor of making any unilateral measures in the West Bank unless it's in complete coordination with, with the American So you're saying an improved status quo. That's, that's the... But a status quo that is moving toward a political horizon. You right. can have the two-state idea out there. I want it out there. Keep in mind, uh, gentlemen, if I may, that we didn't create this state in a date either. It took us 60 years to make this country, from the 1880s to the 1940s. Let's give the Palestinians the same opportunity. I don't know whether they'll be able to avail themselves of that opportunity. We've seen states that have, in the Middle East that have been around for 100 years that have fallen apart. And that goes to deep issues within Arab and Middle Eastern culture, whether the nation state of the European model is even appropriate model for the Middle East. But let's leave that aside. Let's give them the opportunity. We were given the opportunity. And we took in Jews from 70 different countries and nations of the world, and we put them in the middle of a, a country that, geographically speaking, was the size of a fingernail clipping. A shithole country. Well, I'm not going to say that. And with, uh, you know, with no natural resources and with, surrounded by adversity. And we created a nation state. By, by the way, by, according to any international criteria, one of the highest functioning nation states in the world. So if we could do it, maybe the Palestinians can do it. I hope mm -hmm. they could. I think it would be in our interest um, if they could. But... Seeing as they can't right now, I'm, willing, I'm unwilling to sit passively with the status quo. I want to change it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and again, I want to emphasize, I think that we have never been in a better position to do so. Back to your um, book. book <laughs> because I, I would like to ask you, please, uh, what was a crisis moment you had to deal with? In writing the book or, 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 or in, in my <laughs> term in as your ambassador? Term, in your term as ambassador. Every day was a crisis moment. Um, and, <laughs> but and but usually the whole way through, you were and saying And usually rotating no crisis. crisis, a revolving crisis. It was one after another. One um, that really scarred you. I always quote, in the book, I quote the book of Job. Um, <laughs> when people are coming Job to Job and saying that his kids are dead, his wife is dead, his field are burns, and, and Job says, which translates roughly as, I haven't gone over the last crisis and already I'm dealing with this one. Yeah. And that's what I felt like all the time, uh, that line from Job. There was oh, just, just uh, successive consecutive crises with occasional you know, uh, bright lights. Uh, it was Obama's effort, uh, offer to help Israel during the horrible uh, Carmel fire disaster and was very, very generous there. And uh, you know, just Washington itself and Washington life in the United States of America and our spe special relationship with Israel was always a source of, of inspiration and joy for me. Um, so it wasn't unmitigated, you know, darkness, on the contrary. Um, and the, the position of ambassador was deeply fulfilling for me. The process of writing the book, though, was grueling. Um, and uh, How so? Well, first of all, I had to go through seven layers of, 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 uh, of census here, of uh, censure here. Oh. And... Um, Wow. So Seven. We, we really read two-thirds of the book. Okay. but uh, <laughs> No, we're saying no. there's another third that you weren't oh, allowed to publish. No, it wasn't so much allowed to publish. I, I'm sort of a, I was self-censoring. I knew what could be published and what couldn't. Okay. But it still had to go through readings from uh, the Army, several from the Defense Department, Defense Ministry, from the Mossad, uh, the Foreign Ministry, reading after reading after reading, and everyone had comments. Was there any courtesy reading that you gave to the anybody on the United States side? Yeah, people on the American side read it. Yeah, um, but um, so that was that was it. That was trying. That was interesting. It was an interesting process for the most part. The, the, the hardest part was that when the book came out, the Obama administration launched a campaign against it, and part of that campaign was to call me a liar, and and say that I'd written about re meetings that I hadn't taken part in, which would. I think come as a surprise to my note takers, mm -hmm. um, and to try to sort of um, to to attack my credibility, to discredit me in every way, 
um, which tactically was a mistake on their part because they helped make it a bestseller because uh, mm -hmm. it made it generated so much press. I mean, if you wanted something to go away, you ignore it. You don't attack it frontally. Um, I had spent years dealing with the American media, particularly with the American liberal media, and I watched within two or three days every American um, interview I had established in the liberal media was canceled. Boom, boom, boom. Charlie Rose, canceled. Uh, PBS, canceled. Uh, National Public Radio, canceled. People I'd known for years. And what I'd hoped was to, was to present this book as a centrist book, because I am centrist in my thinking, and the only media I got was from the conservative and neoconservative right, uh, which positioned the book in a place where I wish it hadn't been. Mm -hmm. And we haven't talked about what the book has to say about American Jewry and Israel's relationship with American Jewry. And there, you know, I wrote from a position of deep, deep caring. You know, the, the book is about 411 pages long. I don't want to scare off any potential readers. It goes fast. Um, it's but five written excellent, excellently, you. by the way. Five pages, five pages about the U.S.-Israel, the, the, the Israeli-American Jewish relationship. Those five pages... I went back and rewrote again and again and again until I got it. I thought I got it right. And it, was, it came from a place of deep, deep caring and pain. And my hope was that it would stimulate some type of conversation. Why were you so careful about it? Because I wanted to get it right. I wanted to get it balanced. And what, what, do you I, mean? what, what I found what? out about, about much of the sort of the American Jewish official class, which includes journalists and leaders, was that over the last 15, 20 years, they have grown very accustomed to criticizing Israel. But when it came to when they came up for criticism, they were unable to take it. Hmm. So, for example, I'll give you a, a, an observation I made in the book, which I think is unassailable, which is that um, you know the anti-Semites will say that the, that the reason America is pro-Israel is because the Jews control the press. And if you look at the American media, the print media, um, certainly the television, radio media, now maybe the new media. You have a disproportionate number of Jews in those media. Also in podcasting, by the way. Yes, also in podcasting. Okay. Uh, disproportionate. You know? mm -hmm. um, you know, Jews are less than 2% of the population in the United States. How many, what percentage of the media do they take out? And, um, and it hasn't, the media, I don't think you'll find anybody who's in the pro-Israel community will say that the media is particularly pro-Israel. In fact, mostly it's the other case that, that the fact that there's so many Jews in the media tends to make the media more critical of Israel. And I coined, a, a, identified a phenomenon that you had uh, American Kamala, columnists who write only about domestic issues, except for when it comes to Israel. They write about Israel, write about Israel critically because they're American Jews and they feel that that is their duty to write critical about Israel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I pointed this out and gave several examples. And I came up for just a, a hailstorm of criticism for this. I'm, I'm accusing the American Jewish media of being anti-Semitic, of being unbalanced. But this was, a, it's, I think because I touched such a raw nerve, the response was so acerbic. And um, you know, I talked about, uh, <laughs> I gave an example of, um, of an art show. Actually, there was an art show that was dedicated to me toward the end of my tenure. And this 90-something-year-old woman came up to me. She was maybe, maybe five foot tall. And she stuck a bony finger in my, my face. And she said, I like you, but I don't like your country. <laughs> I don't like everything your country does. I said, Madam, do you like everything your country does? And she says, no, but your country in Israel, and you have to be perfect. Huh. And I thought that was a very... Uh, Genuine. Very illuminating remark, yeah. that we have to be perfect. We, you know, America can kill, I don't know how many hundreds, maybe thousands of civilians right. in its war against ISIS. And if Israel kills civilians in Gaza while they're being used as human shields by Hamas to shoot at us, then we are condemned as war criminals. We are up. We it's are not seven. fair, but... It's a completely different standard. Yeah. But it's isn't that our own mandate to ourselves to be it, a light up It's one thing for our mandate to be ourselves. Another thing to, 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 for people to condemn us as war criminals for things that their own country does, and they don't think twice about it. They don't know yeah. about it, maybe even, because, yeah. you know, it's shoved to the back pages of the newspaper. One of the sub t subplots in the, in, the, in the book is my relationship with my former college roommate, a gentleman named David Rothkopf, who's a prominent Washington uh, think tanker. He's the publisher of Foreign Policy Magazine. And we had, a, we had an exchange on the papers of, uh, pages of Foreign Policy Magazine. And I said to David, I said, you've got to ask yourself honestly, what bothers you more when American troops kill an Iraqi civilian or an Israeli troops accidentally, inadvertently kill a Palestinian civilian? And if you come down that it bothers you more okay, about the Israelis killing the Palestinians, then you have to admit you have a problem. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I, I would pose that question to many American Jews, particularly of that 
of that in that class. And I came up to, for furious um, criticism. People completely overlooked the criticism of Israel in the book, where I was involved in the negotiations over the Western Wall, and felt that uh, that Israel was not living up to its 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 self-stated identity as the nation state of the Jewish people, of of dangerously, you know, fraying the fabric of, of Israel diaspora relations. All this, no one paid any attention to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so almost no discussion around it. So that, that I must tell you, was disappointing to me. So um, starting at the same time as Obama was Bibi, and he's still around. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you just spoke about the fact that right now we are at one of the most opportune times there has ever been for a peace deal. How, how adept do you think Benjamin Netanyahu is to uh, striking that kind of uh, deal? Well, it's not a deal. It's, it's moving forward. Let's be clear. I don't think we're about to have peace tomorrow because, again, there's no one really we can make peace with. But um, so I, know that he is, I know that he is amenable. And uh, listen, I'm not his spokesman and, uh, and I'm not even in his party. Mm-hmm. But uh, I know he's amenable. He is not going to do anything that's going to jeopardize this country in any way. That's what he sees as his uh, supreme goal is security of the state of Israel. Including, according to outer sources, attacking Iran. Attacking Iran? Yes. Um, I don't know. According to... I don't know. Et cetera, Uh, et cetera. um, Clearly, Israel reserves the right and has maintained the ability, has developed the ability to defend itself, including against Iran. And the Iranians know it. Uh, there's much talk now about Trump pulling out of the Iranian nuclear deal and the thought that, and, and, the, and, this is, and the fear that Iran will then use that withdrawal as an excuse to break out and create nuclear weapons. Well, it could have done that before the nuclear deal. Why didn't it do it? Because of us. We were the deterrence, not mm-hmm. sanctions. Mm-hmm. Those, that deterrence remains as potent today, if not more so, than it was in 2015. Let's not forget that. So Netanyahu so. will not jeopardize um, the security of Israel, but... In the moment of truth, he will prevail and and help the Palestinians improve their lives. That's what you're saying, basically. Uh, I be- again, in a way that is consonant with our security interests, I think he will. I don't know if everyone in the coalition will. Mm-hmm. You know, I sit in the Knesset, and I'm a member of the Kulanu party, and I sit in what I call the spitz of Kulanu that goes into the Likud party. I sit around major Likudniks, and I ask them. And I don't see a lot of maneuverability among Likudniks. Um, they won't even enter a, a process, at least as far as I can understand from them, that will have as an ultimate goal the two states for two peoples, uh, even if it's real, real, realizable in decades. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, and many of them <coughs> could just recently voted to annex the West Bank. So they're in a different place. Yeah. And uh, Netanyahu is the head of the Likud, and Likud now is still leading in the polls. If elections were held tomorrow, they, it would win again. Um, we have to respect Israeli democracy even when we disagree with some of the choices made by the Israeli electorate. Do you believe that there is someone currently in the government, or maybe not, that is more fit to to drive this process forward? Mm, can't go there because I am a politician. Okay, <laughs> okay. Not just in story, not just an expanser, but I can say that. And, uh, you know, I'd like to think that the head of my party, Moshe Kachalon, would be a serious contender for prime minister someday. Mm-hmm. Um, uh but what I will say is this, having served under not just this prime minister, but, but prime ministers in the past and known them, I have uh, interacted with presidents of the United States and with world leaders. I will tell you unequivocally that being the prime minister of Israel is simply the hardest job on planet Earth. Nothing comes close. The U.S. president takes two two-week golf vacations every, every year, okay? They always show them waving, hello, playing golf. Americans like to see their president playing golf. If the Prime Minister of Israel would take an afternoon off to play golf, people would be in the streets. There's no vacation. There's no downtime. There's no sleep. Because you, you hear a lot about yeah. criticism in the, in the Israeli media, especially about how Netanyahu's clinging on to this uh, job of Prime Minister and, and he's, you know, uh, involved in corruption stuff because it, it affords him such a good life. But you're saying that's You know, I was just having this bullshit. conversation the other day. <laughs> it's very common in the Israeli press to say that, that Netanyahu was a nentan. Yeah. Now, that, that word translates roughly, roughly into English as sybarite. Any of, I don't know if any of you guys know what the word sybarite means. That's someone who, like, enjoys likes the pleasures. The likes the good life. Uh-huh. Let me know what kind of good life. The guy gets three, four hours a night's sleep. No yeah. vacations. He's constantly battered in the press. 
you know, they think that because he used to smoke cigars that that, you know, that was an indulgence for this person. You know, you can say many things. Everyone's entitled to their criticism of the prime minister. But to say that he is a Sybarite, uh, to say that any prime minister of Israel is a Sybarite is to not understand this job. Mm-hmm. When someone says to me, prime minister of Israel, the image I have is a man who's sitting in front of a bank of phones at 3 a.m. in the morning. You know, in America, they would say, oh, how are you going to react to the 3 a.m. phone call? In Israel, it's not the 3 a.m. phone call. In Israel, it's the 3 a.m. phone calls and the 4 a.m. phone calls. And by the way, the 2 a.m. phone calls. And you're, you're, you're the prime minister, you're sitting in front of four phones. One rings, hello, there's a rocket falling in the north. Another one falls, another one rings, ah, oh, there's a, there's a t- terrorist have penetrated the south. Another one rings, there's a history strike tomorrow. And it's like this all night. And unless you see it up close, you can't imagine how immeasurably and incalculably difficult this job is. And if you're going to go in it for pleasure, boy, you're going for the wrong place. <laughs> Good answer. You know, I can't help but remember the part in your book when you say how Obama and Netanyahu are actually similar in many ways. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a hard one, by the way. And, and they both thought of themselves as the smartest men in the room. In many cases, they actually were. Um, they both had very dominant... Uh, and influential wives. They um, both were kind of outsiders. Um, you know, Bibi was an outsider for, for, for Israel. He's from Jerusalem. He's from a revisionist family. They, um, they both thought of themselves as transformative leaders, not just a head of state or, or elected uh, official, but a, a, a person who had a role in history, both left-handed. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of similarities. Um, and both orders, extraordinary orders, some of the probably the best of the century, and uh, so they were very similar. Where they differed, and this difference was profound, was in the worldview, hmm. which were thoroughly incompatible. So, in the end of the day, hmm. from what I interpret, you look back at those years, and and you would argue that Obama wasn't good for us. He didn't bring enough. value we need a bottom our, line we need a bottom line here. <laughs> because Obama. many supporters sorry because many supporters of Obama here in Israel say look in the end of the day he supported us financially more than ever mm-hmm. he did the Iran deal which gave us gives us 10 years whether you like it or not it gives us time it buys us time and in that time maybe something will happen in Iran as we see today and And yes, the settlements, but many Israelis agree with him about his, uh, how he treated settlements. So maybe it wasn't that bad, or was it? I, I'm confused, is what I'm trying to say. The Obama years may be looked upon as we, you know, 100 years from now, 50 years from now, as a turning point in the U.S.'s relationship, but not only the U.S.'s relationship. Remember, my whole thesis of my book is that the U.S.'s relationship is a litmus for the world. It may be a turning point for America and the world. Um, I can go into, you know, I can go, as they used to say in the administration, granular and say, yes, he signed a memorandum of understanding which gave Israel uh, more military aid over the next decade than we've ever received. And that's deeply appreciated. On the other hand, I knew that the signing of the MOU would open the way for American condemnations of Israel in the, in the, in the Security Council, because that's the way Obama worked, that there'd be no daylight on security issues, but the more daylight, the lesser the daylight on security issues, the more daylight there would be on diplomatic and strategic issues, which is precisely what happened. And mm-hmm. I had reservations about the signing of the MOU for that reason. Um, it, Obama opened the Middle East uh, to, Iranian, to Iranian hegemony. Um, he opened Syria to not just uh, Iranian intervention, but Russian intervention. Uh, he left the Middle East in a far more unstable position than he made it, than he left it. He, um, he furthered the Palestinian efforts to stay out of the peace process, to go lateral, to uh, condemn us and isolate us in the, in the ICC and in the International Criminal Court. Um, he, I could even go even in greater detail. In 2014, uh, during the protective edge, he allowed our, our airport to be closed, which was the single greatest achievement of any terrorist organization. And by the way, in the next war, that, he allowed it. He closed it. A rocket he fell. He closed it? Yes, he closed it. The FCC, all right, uh, F, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, the FAA, uh, aviation group, closed it because supposedly a rocket fell within uh, close mm-hmm. to a, a, that was a mile. That was his doing. Well, I think he could, have, he could have stopped it if he wanted to. 
but uh, he didn't. Next war, I guarantee you that rock, that airport's going to be hit by thousands of rockets because they know. And even with our most advanced anti-ballistic systems, we can't stop all of them. All they have to do is get one gets through. It's a terrible precedent. A terrible precedent. Um, and, you know, it was building up Erdogan. It was engaging Rouhani. It was a time attempt to engage the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. All of these legacies we are still grappling with uh, in one way or the other. And um, that, when, I, when you said that the, the Obama era has not ended in the Middle East, it was still very much with us. It also created a, a deep rift uh, within the United States. It's not as if we didn't have a role in, in deepening the rift ourselves. We did in Israel. But it was uh, a rift that you saw in its greatest form in, in, the, in the form of uh, Bernie Sanders and his campaign. I was joking with somebody the other day and saying 2020, um, and Bernie Sanders may run again, but he'll run as a centrist because the Democratic Party will continue to move leftward, particularly on our issues um, and our attempts to... Um, to maintain bilateral support, bipartisan support in the United States, which I believe is a, is a paramount Israeli interest, become increasingly, increasingly, increasingly difficult. And certainly the bombing period accelerated that. Um, as for the world, again, the dismantlement of American uh, power in the world, the, the robing it and cloaking it in virtue, I see now that uh, President Trump is trying to reverse that, the, the great make America great again, I think that these are historical processes. Not they don't turn. America's foreign policy has often been referred to as a as a as an aircraft carrier, which is difficult to turn around. It's not a speedboat. We're a speedboat, and uh, we have to see whether this can be turned around. And where one of the one of the points I make in the book again and again is that Obama was a symptom, not the cause of deep-seated changes, historical changes in the United States, demographic changes, economic changes, social changes, racial changes, every type of change was reflected in the Obama administration. It wasn't that you had a, a, a president who was a one-off who had this worldview. That worldview was reflective of that of a lot of America, a big chunk of America. And we're going to have to deal with that. Two points that, I don't know, sort of to end on an ironic note if we're coming to the end, is this. Where did Obama help us? Forget the MOU. Where did he help us? And this, I, by the way, have said to the prime minister, to many people, Obama helped us by throwing us out of the nest. For 40, 45 years, we have lived in, with the Pax Americana. And we relied on them. Well, sure we did. I was in Beirut in 1982 with the, with, the, with the Israeli special forces. And we knew if we got into a fix, the Marines would come and get us out. And they did. Well, guess what? They're not going to do that anymore. We're on our own. For a large measure, we're on our own. And that's why Prime Minister Netanyahu was in India tonight, because we were thrown out of the nest. We were forced to go out and, and forge all these different relationships New with Africa. Yeah, we, we became a mature, much more mature country because of Obama. And the second point? Second point is Obama sought to bring Israelis and Arabs closer together through peace. He did not succeed, but he brought us closer together through common concern slash fear over his policies, particularly toward Iran. And today we have a relationship with the Sunni Arab world that we never could have dreamed of before, largely thanks to, thanks to President Obama. And it would be ironic and perhaps justifiable uh, to see that, that, that that new closeness between Israel and the Sunni Arab world will help in the ultimately advance peace. And that would be my hope. And so we can look back at the Obama era uh, with a, a more nuanced uh, perhaps even sympathetic approach. Deputy Minister Oren, the book that you wrote is called mm -hmm. Ally, and it's available on Amazon. We'll put links to it, mm -hmm. and we recommend it. Strongly recommend it. Thanks. Because it's really book. good. And before we go, we have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal. Did the Jewish Journal, which I'm sure you know, is a, a news source, a Jewish Journal of Los Angeles. You can check them out on jewishjournal.com. And uh, we have a donation uh, page now on our website. And if you want to help us, please donate. And this is it. Uh, Deputy Minister, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, you're on Facebook, you're on Twitter. Great. <laughs> shalom, shalom. Bye-bye. <laughs>